This is the third My Dilorama podcast. We're going to start with a short intro talking about our picks of the week and then moving swiftly on to The Staircase and uh, True Crime, which we're both fans of. So these couple of weeks, I've watched The Dark Finale, which I keep going on about. It's the German series on Netflix, which is absolutely compulsive viewing. It's as bonkers and full of twists and turns as Lost, but without any of the incoherence or many, many plot holes. So (laughs) especially when it comes to time traveling, they manage to tie all the loose ends together. And there are very, very few things that don't make sense or lose threads. Uh, So really recommend watching that. I also watched a film I can't recommend enough. Now, I know I keep banging on about Palestinian film, but just bear with me. This is the film called Walled Citizen by Samir Kumsiye. And it was selected by the Galway Film Festival. So it was on their website. It featured the film and a Q&A with the filmmaker. And uh, that was broadcast on their website on the 12th of July. And it was also selected just to make sure you know where to find it. It was also selected uh, by the Adventure Travel Film Festival in the UK. So hopefully that will take place in August at the Manhattan Film Festival, which should also take place in August. I mean, probably all online. Um, Essentially, the... Samir Kumsi is a documentary. He's a Palestinian filmmaker who attempts to explore the planet as a backpacker. Now, obviously, he's a Palestinian, so the world is pretty much close to him. So he manages, despite incredible hurdles, to get out there and travel. And he documents this journey and his encounters with other travellers. Now, what I found interesting was he examines the concept of travelling and how inherently privileged it is and it's a huge luxury which is unavailable to most people in the world and he speaks to seasoned backpackers and fellow Palestinians reflecting on the fact that year after year they welcome these international globetrotters they interact with them and they can't leave their occupied territories so I thought that was a really interesting look at how restrictive the border system is for for a start and the sheer privilege of being able to travel the world. Yeah, can I say something about that? You know, when I talk about how I spend an obscene amount of money on skincare or random stuff that I don't, you know, when you look back over the year, they send you the credit card statement that shows all your crap. I've spoken to more than one person with this air of superiority. Oh, well, I don't buy things. I buy experiences and I like to travel. It's like, that's the same thing. So stop talking down to me because if you, like you're saying, it is very privileged, that whole, it's status. It's saying you have leisure time. Either you can afford to be off work with no pay or you have a job that allows you to have holiday pay and the money to go overseas, which is an expensive thing. Yeah, exactly. So that was Walled Citizen by Samir Kumsiye. Quick couple of recommendations. There's a series on the BBC4 called Art of Persia. I'm actually recommending watching it alongside a podcast, which is, it's a very new podcast launched by one of the founders of the Kurdish Film Festival. So he created a podcast in response to Art of Persia on BBC4 which is called, he called it a long distance podcast, which is kind of what what we're doing. It's him and, and a friend who lives in another country. And he recorded it to address some issues he had with this documentary. And it's very interesting because he talks about stuff that I didn't really know about regarding Iranian nationalism. He feels that what he calls the essentialist idea of Iran has informed the narrative of this series. And he takes issue with that. 
And he expands and says that this concept was actually made up in Europe in the 20th in the sorry, in the 19th century by Orientalist thinkers who um, were inspired by the discovery of the Indo-European language family and then developed this whole theory of the Aryan race. And I thought that was very interesting that he traced it back to that. And I quote him as well, saying it provided the backbone of the authoritarian nation state building pro uh, project of the Pahlavi dynasty and their Aryan Iranian national ideology. So he en ended up making a podcast, a response to that documentary that was very much inspired by that concept of, of Iranian nationalism and Iranian essentialism. I'll put a link to both in the description. And the third thing I want to recommend quickly is Korean Film Nights and Burbeck University's combined season, which is called Trapped, the Cinema of Confinement. And that starts this week on Thursday. And it opens with the film 301-302 by Park Chul Soo. It's online and it's completely free to watch. And they're all Korean films dealing in some form of an or another with the concept of confinement. So this one's the psychological thriller and it touches on themes of female identity and sexuality. And there's quite a lot of cooking in that film, which I like. So that's available on the Korean film website and the KCC UK YouTube channel. And again, I'll put links to that um, in the description. So these are my picks for uh, the, the fortnight, I guess, not just the week. Okay. Um, what about so you? This week I have three, uh, the Clark sisters, the first ladies of gospel, 2019, College Behind Bars, 2019, and Mucha Mucha Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado, 2020. And that one just came out last week. So the Clark Sisters aired on Lifetime. So I saw it late because it is a 2019 film. And it's about the Clark Sisters, a Detroit-based gospel vocal group consisting of the five daughters of world-renowned gospel choir director and musician, Dr. Maddie Moss Clark. She's got, so the five daughters are Jackie, Denise, Twinkie, Dorinda, and Karen. So I really enjoyed the script and the acting and it was on Lifetime. So I was expecting a soap opera, some sort of trash, but it was not. And I thought that also why Lifetime? They're a gospel group. So it seemed to be inappropriate in my mind how I thought the story would be framed, but no, it was really good. So I thought it was good because it drew characters, not caricatures, even though I'm under no illusion that this is true to life, but I thought it was good from someone who knew nothing about the group. So I think there were, of course, the recognizable archetypes like the domineering mother, the dutiful daughter, the rebel, the beauty queen, the quiet one, etc., etc. But people have to watch it. So I think it had to be melodramatic in that way. And the mom was certainly a Joe Jackson type figure. I was okay with that because I think if you want to be excellent, you need that sort of taskmaster. So people can say what they want about these sort of stage parents, but you know what? If we didn't have those stage parents, I don't think we would get the talent that we have, but that's my own take on it. So I thought it was also a perfect balance of story and singing. We all know I like musicals and I was expecting a musical, but no, they did a really good job of trying to balance their performances with the background of what was happening in the family. So the second one was College Behind Bars of 2019. So this is a four-part series that profiles the Bard Prison Initiative, BPI, which offers associates and bachelor's degrees to people who are incarcerated. I believe it's pretty exclusive because there were a couple of examples of people 
being transferred to another prison and they can no longer participate. And you also have to apply. So it's not as if every prisoner you get to tick a box and say, I want to get a degree or not. You have to apply to the program, interview, be accepted. And it looks like a small cohort of people that come in each year. And I think that was really what was disheartening to me. So they, in the early episodes, of course, they introduce you to the different prisoners and they talk because I imagine the filmmakers thought that's going to be the question. Like, where is this offered? How did this come about? All that kind of stuff. So they start off with a yeah. political struggle to get this program more more funding, more widespread, that type of thing. And the current governor of New York, Cuomo, was featured in that. And he wanted, he was, you know, promoting it. He's a Democrat. And I don't remember if it was the first or second episode, but at any rate, he supported it until conservative politicians quit that since these prisoners don't have to pay for college. Once their children turn of age, they'll ask, have them commit crimes so that they can get locked up and get a free college education. And there was that sort of pushback. And of course, you know, the quip was funny in a sort of obvious way because that's kind of a, you know, kind of lame joke a dad would make, but it really should have been the call, a political call for political action, right? Because it shouldn't have been, we should restrict it because we're trying to punish them. It should be about expanding higher education and say, that's right. Why do we pay for higher education? Nobody should be paying for it. And I think it, that sort of response to say, oh, well, they're prisoners, they're supposed to be punished. When you look at the road, most people how they got to prison is not as if these are a bunch of petulant privileged people who decided to act out and committed a crime and got caught. These people come from pretty chaotic lives as we all know, right? There's lots of neglect, yeah. if, if not abuse, neglect and not really having a supportive family or guidance generally. So it's not as if crime is the only thing that gets you in prison because people commit crimes all the time. We all commit crimes. So Prison is reserved for uh, control of a certain group of people, especially in this country, you know, black men, uh, but also to deal with social problems. That was totally missed. And I was just disappointed that Cuomo just backed down as opposed to being part of a larger discussion about why we restrict so many things for the upper middle class and the wealthy, college being one of them, but we could name others. So that was that. Then the last one was Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado 2020, and that just came out a week or two ago. And it chronicles the rise, legal battle, and reclusion of Walter Mercado, the acclaimed Puerto Rican clairvoyant. I never heard of this person, but, no, yeah, but I don't speak Spanish, and it seems as if that's where he was featured, was on Spanish speak or I guess Spanish speaking television because it wasn't Spanish but you know Spanish speaking television they said at mm -hmm. his height he reached 120 million viewers it was an interesting one so it talked about the identity that he had that allowed him to rise to such fame and I think the one that stood out to me of course because I study race and I spend lots of time thinking about race and racism was the wider context in which he existed because a lot of, or maybe significant, that might be better, significant amount of time was spent talking about queerness. And no one talked about whiteness, which I found very bizarre, especially in a country like, well, I shouldn't say country, an island like Puerto Rico. So in terms of his persona, right, his branding was he's very fair-skinned, blonde hair, and androgynous appearance. So, of course, yeah. the 
documentary filmmakers who were interviewing him asked about that, right? Are you gay? What's your you know personal life? And throughout his career, he avoided those types of questions. And really his response was that he is himself, right? More like a pansexual. He has sex with beauty, life, and love. He's not committed to one person, right? So he did that to kind of avoid it. So I'm not sure then. It's like if someone has that response and that's how they're you know situating themselves is that really being a queer icon or is that the opposite which is individualism to say like i'm beyond that i'm not defined by that and, yeah and so I'm, i wasn't sure like are you kind of reading back into the past and trying to adopt him for today because i'm not to me i wasn't convinced of it but also i think there is something about that icon making sense to that ethnic group and it's probably a lot is lost on me because i'm black right so black american i wouldn't get a lot of that anyway so this is certainly coming from an outsider perspective um but i didn't really see that i was just waiting for someone are we going to talk about race here because i and that's even on spanish-speaking television you just don't really see black people on there but even even the context you know watching him it really reminded me of century of the self for example, someone asked him about his religious practice because he was a clairvoyant and what he would do was uh, he wrote, what's the name of it where you write uh, horoscopes? Yes. So that's what he did. So in his spots on TV, he would provide the horoscopes. When he was asked about his religion, he called it an interfaith religion because the question was, it's a mix of Santeria, Catholicism, and Christianity. So what's this religion? And he said, well, I call it an interfaith religion that is a point of convergence of the main religions. Essentially, like, it was a combination of the golden rule, motivational speaking, and self-esteem. It was just like love and believe yeah. in yourself. So it really screamed a century of the self. And it's no coincidence that his rise, right, he the first time he started doing these shows, I believe. And he's an actor. I should have mentioned that. So he's an actor by trade. To That happened in like 69. So that is totally maps onto that timeline where it is all about self-esteem, believing in yourself. Nothing very apolitical. I mean, essentially he's Oprah is what he is. Like had he owned his show, he would be Oprah. Yeah. And so yeah, no yeah. She exemplifies no, no, that movement. Absolutely. She puts a, a black face to it. And no one says anything about race. The closest that we got was in an interview. He says diversity makes Hispanics stronger. So diversity, that can mean anything. I, I don't really know. Also, no one said anything about money because part of what happened in the film was he did not do the business part of show business and that old chestnut very much alive in this one. And one thing I didn't like, uh, FYI was someone made a little smart comment that somehow made it in the film so or no it was a quip someone made so oh yeah I guess it was a question so someone asked him are you ready for your close-up and of course they are referencing the line from Sunset Boulevard and I thought okay I get that he's a diva but you have to deal with that he had an audience of 120 million at some point so I don't care how he acts out I just thought hmm He's no Gloria Swanson, but ultimately it was just a cautionary tale. Um, and yeah, I think if he had good attorneys, if he bought his show and he had connection to a distribution company, he would have been Oprah. So yeah, that's it for me. 
that was uh, much more comprehensive in your research than my introduction. So thanks for showing me up. Never my intention. <laughs> That's why you wanted to go lies. second. <laughs> All absolute lies. But your timing is brilliant because you hit right on 45, which I thought would be the time when we move on from intro to the crux of the matter, which is the staircase and our obsession with true crime. So you recommended I watch the staircase. So I've been doing that with Chris, uh, my husband, for those who don't know. And yeah, it's um, it brought up all sorts of issues. Now, the problem is, I had been watching one episode a night, which means I've still not finished it. I'm on episode eight, The Verdict. So we're going to just go ahead and say we're going to be discussing spoilers because there's no way around it really, is there? Now, I'm just going to say that briefly, the, the, the main things that it brought up and then you can tell me what you think of this. I guess the take home message for me was that how little evidence actually matters, right? So I'm still, again, I'm still on episode eight. So it's still very much the first verdict where he's found guilty by the jury. It very much feels like the jury thought he's a bit weird. He watches porn and he's had an affair. So clearly he's a killer, right? Too many coincidences. This isn't right. We're disregarding the very factual, solid, concrete evidence where essentially there's no murder weapon, there's no proof, there's no motive, there's nothing there that's tangible, that's tangibly linking him to the murder scene and to the, that, that implies that his wife was killed. So it reminded me a bit of, to a lesser extent, I guess, but um, the uh, serial, but more specifically, actually the HBO documentary, The Case Against Adnan Syed, which uh, if you remember, he's he's the subject of the very famous podcast Serial and he was accused of kidnapping and murdering his ex-girlfriend in uh, 1999 in Baltimore and what was crucial in convicting him was the testimony of his friend Jay Wilde who provides very conflicting statements over the years and despite the fact there's no trace of his DNA on the anywhere on the murder scene. There's no match for fingerprints or anything like that. And the documentary sort of implies that Jay Wilds might have been coerced by the police to f change his testimony in exchange for them overlooking the fact that he sold drugs. So it was very infuriating, it actually made me really sad because ultimately this guy's still in prison and there was a spike of interest and people wanted to revisit the case when Serial came out and then the HBO documentary. But now, years down the line, again, it's sort of faded into the background. And there's a real risk of this, this oh, stuff. Oh, what was his sentence, um, by the way? Did he get life or...? Yeah, yeah, he got life. And he, he, and he keeps trying to appeal and it's never, it's always quashed. So I felt a bit like that with... Michael Peterson. Now he's he comes across as a bit more odd, let's be honest. I think ultimately what's played a huge part in my assessment well, of, I know, my personal, I guess not assessment, but impression of him was the fact that, and I don't know what you think of this, that nobody, and I think his lawyer makes that point, nobody at any point mentions anything that would indicate that he's violent or aggressive or capable of something like that. And I do feel that ultimately this doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up one day and you kill someone. I feel like there will be some trace there of past examples of domestic violence, of erratic behaviour, 
or something that's an, an event that's happened in your life that's provoked this from bereavement to becoming an alcoholic to anything like that that might impact greatly on your behavior so i'm of the mind that it's very rare for it to just happen well, in a I vacuum was left with an i don't know I certainly agree there was not enough to convict him. And I think I've been more surprised by people who've watched it and said he's definitely guilty. And I'm like, how did you come to that conclusion? So most people who I know think he was definitely guilty. And I was left with, I don't know. And it certainly made you question. So how were charges brought up exactly? Because just because he, and, but there was money trouble and I think it was overstated because it was something like he was $100,000 in debt. But I think people missed the bigger picture. $100,000 or it was more than maybe, you know, 120 or something. That means something when you are a middle class person or a lower middle class person. That might be worth more than your house. So you wouldn't even have access, access that line of credit. And I think that's what people missed. When you live in a mansion and your wife is an executive... You can hire like a whole you, team of yeah, lawyers. It's true. You'll be in that debt, but that debt does not mean that you're desperate for cash. It means you might be paying it off in 10 years after you, you know, after she retires, she gets her pension, you sell the house, you move to Florida. But because people aren't part of that world, they totally missed it and said, oh, 100000 That was nothing to them. That that just shows how the other half lives because that's yeah. where you carry $10,000 of credit card debt. They carry $100,000 of credit card debt, but it doesn't mean you're going to kill <laughs> You're going to kill your wife for that $20,000 insurance policy. And that's the part I couldn't get past that she was clearly worth more than more alive because she was going to keep making money. She wasn't retiring soon. And let's not forget the way they allege it was she was paying for his, the daughters to go to school more the reason not to kill her, right? You need them paid for. So Mm -hmm. you're certainly going to wait for that. And if we're to believe that he hid his affairs for all those years, he could have finessed his way out of that. Like if she caught him the way the prosecution is saying it happened, I believe he'd be able to talk his way out of that. Cause he's been, if, if like they say, she didn't know about it, then he certainly would have been able to woo her back and get her back in line. And the way they are talking about their relationship. And I think that was the other part that really annoyed me was this idea. And I've had to cut of, friend off she's certainly become a friend of me because she's that type of person who's always talking about people's relationships like she's in them you don't know what happens behind closed doors and I learned this as a girl when I would go home with people after church occasionally to you know play for the afternoon and you would see these people like I would never think you live like this in terms of the arguments the way people spoke to one another you would think are you guys even a family I'm here I'm sitting hello (laughs) I'm like guest here they don't even put on their guest face for children and so I've never been one to think so I didn't put any credence in any of that what the sisters said about their relationship or what their friends said or even their children so I could only look at motive and I just didn't see it and I do also think it's possible even though the sisters are claiming oh my sister would never have put up with that you don't know what your sister would have put up with clearly it's nothing you tell your friends or family about But people do that today. They go through infidelity in their marriage and they don't tell people about it. They go to counseling and they work it out on their own because people are so judgy and in your business and then they have to follow up. Yeah, they go on mum's (laughs) night. Which is the best 
best place for it because for me to read you tell your friends after you said we've moved on you know we've decided to stay together they're still going to ask you about it three years later oh so you still let him go off on his own it's like i don't want to talk about that anymore but you kind of have to when you invite your friends in because they're concerned which is why she knew better i'm sure the middle-aged woman and said you know what i'm just going to keep that between us and it's also possible that even if she wasn't okay with it she wanted to keep up appearances and keep her family together people have all sorts of motivations so i just wasn't into that although i must say that i absolutely love the comments of the prosecutor she was like he just wants it any which way ah that was the best he uh, just wants talking about hardcore porn. She said, "This is just any which way. This is hardcore porn." <laughs> <laughs> Best line ever. I loved it. We all had to laugh at that. This is just any which way, and I don't know. And it was that obsession. And there is something. It almost makes you want to read Foucault because they were all obsessed with this man's sex life. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that was the nail in the coffin for him. Despite throwing money at this fake jury. The money involved that. Well, you know what's interesting? Something I saw online is they were talking about the evidence that was used in terms of the fall down the stairs, right? To say that there was never so much blood. And a point that was brought up online by a nurse was that the problem was you are only talking about death. If you go to a hospital... You see all the people who have that sort of bloody mess, but they survive it. And so they would never come on your radar. So really, the hospitals would be the ones to ask because they see both when it's fatal and non-fatal, but more so non-fatal. And one of the nurses was talking about how you can see all sorts of bloody stuff like that, but they're found and they survive. So it's, you know, it's not a problem, but they're more likely to see that kind of thing versus someone who's coming to... a investigate a murder you are only in your experience seeing people who are mostly shot right and then how often are you seeing a death that's a result of someone falling down the stairs so really they made it seem like they had all this experience but not really because that rarely happens even though it can and i get why it was dodgy because that was just it right you it feels so wrong because you're like yikes two people in your life die that way but she didn't but she didn't die from well falling exactly down the stairs, so that the was the thing she didn't die from that and that was even a mischaracterization that she died from falling down the stairs and she didn't and so everyone was clear on that and it was like you're looking for something and, and also something that I thought about was when I was younger in elementary school, we would have some of the moms come in and help. And I didn't like them then. I'm sure I wouldn't like them now. It was something about when you're isolated, you're always looking for something. And I almost wondered that about these witnesses, like has nothing been going on in their life in the past 30 years. And now they're getting some excitement by being a witness in this case. Did you get that sense? But who's who's a witness? Who's a witness apart from the, the sisters? Well, I'm talking about the people from Germany who were there. So when they were in Germany, people from their friendship circle who said, oh, no, there was lots of blood on that stairs. And then his ex-wife says, no, there was no blood. Yeah. And also his his ex-wife, actually, his his ex-wife, right? I mean, Chris Chris thought she was just a bit They're old. They're both weird. But I thought, <laughs> But that's you murder because you're weirdo. She's, yeah, but I mean... <sighs> Surely she wouldn't still be matey with him and defend him had he exhibited any signs of or violence. Or let her children go with him. Like you don't let your children go with someone who you think is a bit off kilter. I don't care how much you want your freedom. Mo- I mean, you'd have to be pretty 
a pretty neglectful mom to do that, to just leave your children with anybody. I mean, you you do it if you're with them and you completely what, you know, you're being gaslit into that situation and your your self-esteem is dead and you're in this abusive relationship that you can't seem to get out of. But considering she's been apart from him for decades and she yeah. lives abroad and you'd think she's she's got enough um, perspective to step away and consider what kind yeah, of man I mean, he is. But that, that's the thing, though. That's why I say I don't know, because it is possible, right? He's some sociopath and that's what they do. They hide behind a mask of normalcy. But that's the thing, his mask isn't that normal. So you're like, mm, could, he, <laughs> could he really be crazy? Because I did like that. I must say that almost endeared him to me, his inappropriate jokes, because my family would totally do something like that. It's true. I can tell you <laughs> stories. There was a, you, my friend died. Well, we were frenemies also. God rest her soul. She died when I was about 14. And we had fallen out years before because she stole from me and she was just all around an awful person. But then when she died, I was really taken aback, like, oh my God. And what was crazy was she called me the week before, but I, of course, didn't return her call because we weren't friends anymore. Then I found out she died a week later. Oh God, I felt awful. And I didn't even believe it. I had to go to her house and I said, is she here? And they were like, no, <laughs> she's dead. <laughs> That's so well, look, I didn't believe it. It sounded like a rumor to me. Who dies at 14 from and, and, and no cause of death was given. But anyway, so we went to her funeral. So there was this. And the thing about this friend was she was someone who picked up, quote unquote, friends, no matter where she went. You could go. In, we lived, you know, grew up in a small town and. No matter where we went, she knew someone there because she'd been there before and she would make friends with people. So there was a place where it was, you know, the where they have like the slides and the plastic balls that you jump in and the jungle gym. She had made friends with the manager there to get free food and free tokens. And she's like, come on. And she always knew someone everywhere. So at her funeral, one of the people who got up to speak was this man that no one knew because everyone given we in our residential area, even if you didn't know people personally, you knew of them. So everyone at that funeral was familiar to me, except this guy. And we're all looking around like, who is this guy? It turned out he was the ice cream man. <laughs> so anyway, so he gets up and this is the Catholic funeral. So he gets up to speak. Everyone else kept it under two minutes. He is going on. And my mom is hysterical. She is laughing so hard and, I, and she's in tears. Yes, when the that's what I'm saying. This is the kind of inappropriate, this is how my family is. And she's laughing so hard. I said, mom, please stop. Because I had to laugh because my mom has a really funny laugh. You know how it is, it's contagious. And my mom couldn't stop laughing. And I'm moving away from her in the pew. I said, mom, please stop. Like, I don't want to be hysterical at a funeral. So then my other friend is sitting a few rows back and she's like, is Peggy laughing? And her boyfriend, God, Haiti, she's clearly upset. Yes. <laughs> yelling at her she was like she looked like she's crying though <laughs> it was a fun day so when he was making the jokes about he would be careful <laughs> about falling down the stairs and all these inappropriate jokes i was like ah he belongs with us it feels quite natural doesn't it it feels quite it's someone who doesn't look like he's got a strategy you know, on how to I, behave and i just also think too back to what you were saying before about the expected response. I've seen that in other murder mysteries that I've watched where they're saying, oh, well, their reaction wasn't. But it's back to that. I mean, you don't know, how can you call it overacting? Or how can you call it? Because I've seen other murder mysteries too where they thought someone was guilty because 
when they made the 911 call, they were explaining versus just asking for help. And then it turned out that person didn't even do it. So they don't want to talk about that case. They just want to talk about the time when the person was descriptive and they were guilty, but they're not counting all the times people do that and the portion of times they're guilty and they're not. And I'm wondering, is that even an indicator of anything? And I just don't know. It's just like, well, I mean, maybe. But ultimately, you have to go on facts. That's the, that's the problem. Every, that, that's how this this jury seems to have been motivated. It was very much to do with how they think he should react and how they think he was reacting and his personality. Which he anticipated. He anticipated that enough, happening you know. because he said, you guys don't know this town. I know it. And uh, this is what people, he, he really knew the people of that town. And, you know, as a side note, I know I always take us off on tangents, but years ago, uh, when I was seven, I broke my nose and busted my lip and I fell off a bike. And when I came home, my sister opened the door and her eyes were just big and she gasped and she's like, oh my gosh, lay down. So, but when she called my mom at work, she said, oh, Nikaya fell. My mom said, okay, well, I'll be home from work. So because I, my sister thought maybe I was dying, she, she called my mom's best friend who lived in the same apartment complex that we did. So her best friend takes me to her house when she sees me and she calls my mom and she said oh did you know that Nikaya fell that's still how they're describing it and my mom said yes I know and I will be home you know at five o'clock like I am every day so then my mom sees me bloody clothes torn my face is just all busted up and she's just like why didn't you guys say anything they're like we told you she fell like you you know but clearly she was not seeing that then I would always describe it as you know my I was met my best friend at that time First, my arm was in a sling and her mom said, what happened to you? I said, oh, I fell. <laughs> and then I came back in a cast on my arm and then another cast on my nose. And she said, what happened to you? I said, I fell. It's <laughs> like then her mom thought I was being abused by my mother. So it's all these things that really remind us the way people are describing things. It doesn't really fit a mold because, of course, what her mother was expecting was the story about what happened to say, for God's sakes, you're all battered. So I need to know specifically what happened, just like my mom during that moment wanted to know specifically what happened. But we chose how we communicated that. So from an outsider's perspective, maybe my, you know, my godmother was really the one who injured me trying to hide it with the, oh, she fell, but that couldn't come from a fall. And people for years would say that my injuries, the doctors, that could not have come from a fall. And I absolutely did fall off a bike. But it was, I fell in a very particular way. So I didn't just fall like, you know, you're riding down the street and you fall I fell on a bump and I hit a bar but you see what I mean like all these details matter and so I just was thinking of that the way people describe accidents almost like in court like I don't know if you ever watched Judge Judy but the way you have to tell your story isn't the way people tell stories and you see a lot of people get jumbled up that way because they want to tell their story in a way that you can see it through their eyes but that's not what she wants to hear right it's a legalese that people don't know how to speak. And I almost wonder, is there some sort of a, you know, police speak, reporting speak that they're expecting people to deliver these messages in a very particular way that they don't, that's not what you do either in an emergency or you just don't really know what information they want. So you're just telling what you know, what first comes to mind. And it's traumatic. Like imagine, you know, if it happened the way he said, we could imagine that if you come in the house and you see that, how would you react? I mean, who knows? Oh, but you know something else? I, oh wait, what were you gonna say? Because you're going to say something. Oh, yeah. I was wondering what you thought of the format of the of the documentary, because it's very singularly fly on the wall, isn't it, for a true crime 
series. So there's no talking well, you know, heads. I don't know there's if you're no aware. Apparently they wanted to do both sides, but the prosecution pulled out and said, no, you can't film us anymore. So that's why it became all about his case. Then the problem with, not the problem, but like you're saying, because of the perspective they gave, you didn't get the in-depth or I guess the depths of evidence or this, or how they came to the conclusion of the story that they were trying yeah. to tell. And there's also, so yeah, you're right. Like the way they framed that I thought was really interesting to be able to do frame it in that way and keep it so succinct. Now, did you see the original French production? No, no. And I was so surprised that it was French. I only found out halfway through. I, no, I haven't. Should I? Oh, it was. How different it was is it? It was episodes you saw, funny enough. So the last three episodes were added for Netflix. So the, the episodes you saw then were the French ones. So they only added three. Because how many parts was it? Was it 10 or was it 13? I always get confused. On Netflix, okay. it's 13 and I've only watched... Uh, up until the end okay, of episode Okay, so it eight. aired on French television with a 10-episode miniseries in 2004. And then in 2005, it earned the Peabody Award. And so the one that aired on Netflix were the final three episodes. So then you get all 13 of them together. Something that came up, because, well, so the thing about The Staircase was I watched Murder Mystery to so procrastinate. I can't say that enough, which is why I don't have a PhD. Because instead of writing, I spend my time making notes and outlines and having murder mysteries on in the background. Well, it starts off as background and it turns into foreground very quickly. Not all the time, but on the more compelling stories. And, oh yes, so I had seen this story before. So I was familiar with the case. And when they do the murder mysteries though on TV, the important thing is that they do it always from the prosecution's point of view. So they do allow people who are either in prison, you know, because they've been prosecuted or people who believe the person is not guilty, allow them to speak, but that's not the dominant voice, right? It is always from the perspective of how the defense views the crime. They frame the narrative in that way of, of what they think happened. So I'd always seen it as him being framed as guilty. So me seeing it as the staircase was a completely different perspective because what they focus on in the murder mysteries are either how he, his phone call, which makes him guilty or the debt they were in. And of course the, the affairs, right? Yeah. So in one of them, the staircase, it was called, it was on discovery channel. It revealed some interesting facts. And one was there's a criminologist who uses the 911 call to determine that his word choices and what he says, how he says it, the use of repetition, asking questions indicate that he was on guard. But I'm just not sure how that can be so absolute, those things about what a person says and how they say it. I'm just not sure if they're considering, you know, regional, regional dialects, trauma, shock, influence of drugs or alcohol. Because even something around repetition, my grandmother's from Mississippi and she's constantly, like she does it so much. I don't even notice it. Well, she did. She you know, has dementia now. But prior to that, my whole life, everything was repetition. You would say, that's what, uh, you know, struck my first challenge of that because think, and they also live in the South, which is why it came to mind. But my grandmother's from Mississippi and she always repeats everything with a question. Like you'd say, oh, big man, what's that? Oh, what's this? That's how she starts off everything. And you you kind of block it out because you're, you're used to her speaking that way. So I'm not, so her, that was one of her pieces of evidence, asking a question, but it's like, but he's from the South and 
people do do that. They ask, they start off that way, but that's just the intro to their sentence. They're not really expecting you to respond to that. So questions aren't always questions because I've noticed that right now that my job entails writing speaking points and reports, the way it's affected the way I speak, the way I start off a story, the way I tell it, what I choose to include, all of that can influence it. So perhaps him being a writer and used to doing things in narrative form could influence the way you report what happened, how analytical you are in your mind. Something that people also do is they talk to themselves internally first and then they start speaking to you. So it doesn't mean that they're hiding something. It just means that's how they work things out to communicate what's most important. So they don't rattle on and on and on. So I'm just, so that's what I'm saying. So those, that was the evidence that she gave on how she decided that he was on guard, but it's like, but are you considering that? Or are you looking at standard American English and how people report the news or looking at how someone testifies in court? It's like, you know, because everything has a context. I just thought, mm, I, I wasn't so convinced by that evidence, but people thought it was very strong. But none of it ultimately matters if you don't have concrete evidence. Well, well, now they thought that they did because there was an article on The Intercept. I'm sorry, that wasn't the one I was thinking of. Sorry, it was that. Oh, oh, here we go. So the Cinemaholic reported that Deaver, who was the blood spatter expert from the State Bureau of Investigations, Dwayne Deaver. So his explanation was so detailed that the experts brought in by the defense could not compete with him despite being in sharp disagreement. So that was part of the crux, which you'll learn later is that they were very convinced by what he said and what he said, which is also what was presented in the other murder mysteries that I watched saying how guilty he was that the blood bladder could have only come if he murdered her yes so that was evidence but then of course it turned out that that was made up and that's how he gets a new trial oh you see that's the yeah that's the part i haven't seen and it was central to the prosecution's theory so essentially what he did was he would manipulate evidence to match the prosecution's theory in his career and they found many cases of that and not only that but it uh later what happened is they had this um there was a report that came out in 2009 this is what it was called it was called strengthening forensic science in the united states a path forward and it talks about forensic science and how it's not as absolute as people like to think that some of it is more art than science. And unfortunately, the article on The Intercept, this article on The Intercept, Bad Evidence, they talk about that the debate, even though that report came out in 2009, the debate continues. And unfortunately, you have a lot of resistance. And the person who's at the helm now, he it's very bizarre. He was talking as if having more science and more stringent guidelines about what counts as evidence can stop them from solving cases. It's like, well, then it should, because if it's just you going by, well, I know they're guilty, so this evidence could match it. Is that really the route you want to go? And it sounds like yes. So that's what's, I think, scary. And and I think we should be scared because most of us don't have a million dollars to defend ourselves and we're going to have to plea. That's the reality because there's no way. How are you going to afford experts to counter what is said? How are you going to get witnesses and pull records? All that PI work costs money. And if someone who has a million dollars can't defend themselves, what choice do you, what options do you have? 
even though I don't think he did it. Like I said, I I I don't know, and that's what to me makes me love this documentary more because I don't feel like they took sides. What are your thoughts on that? That's why I appreciated the fact that it's so fly on the wall. And I quite like that because it made very much made you feel like you were part of the proceedings. You were just sat there watching the scenes unfold. So I don't think they took a particular stance, the filmmakers at all. I think obviously, because as you said, in light of what you said about them not being able to film the prosecution side, obviously you're going to start to sympathise more with the defence. Because Also because it helps that the um, the lawyer, David Rudolph, is quite a fun character, isn't he? He's, he's funny, he's yeah. engaging. So... And you see Michael Peterson at home, you see his interactions with his daughters. So it makes you engage with him a bit more. And up until now, I very much feel like what the verdict was based on was uh, his salacious emails, his porn what consumption. This is what I'm talking about, though. It's like the reality is that this case made people reflect on the realities of marriage. There's a commentator that I watch and something that he talked about was something that like whiteness in terms of a marriage has taught people is that you lie to make things work right like you tell people lies to protect their feelings because they can't take it because some things are better left unsaid and that's why it was so hard for people to wrap their minds around a marriage that was honest that she knew he stepped outside the marriage occasionally because they thought that can't exist and it says more about how they structure their relationships than it does about the Peterson marriage. And then I think that it just forces you to wonder, right, when your husband is downstairs, is he messaging sex workers and not playing solitaire like I think he is? And the answer is probably. But even that next step, I think you take so many leaps because you referenced it before when you talked about showing no violence and then all of a sudden murdering someone and all, and they're, Theory was because she was on his computer and she found all this evidence and that led to a murder. It's like, stop, that would have been an argument. Potentially a divorce, but if it was like they were saying, he would have gotten palimony. Is that what you get? Palimony when you're a man? Because the way they say it, she was made all the money. So he would have gotten payments. I don't know in what planet they think after all those years of marriage, he would have walked away empty handed because he cheated. No, no, that would not have happened like that ultimate verdict is you don't know but you doubt no it was just i don't know and because i don't know because what his lawyer pointed out right is that it's not guilty innocent it's guilty not guilty and so i'm with you i'm with you in that it was not guilty just because well everything you're saying is possible but what's likely and what's likely that happened is you know who knows and i still think it was unfair though i'm just so annoyed about them bringing in that evidence from germany it's like everyone said she died from her brain hemorrhage or she had a condition so now all of a sudden because she was found at the bottom of the stairs i mean come on now if for percent and they say he was her sole beneficiary but it was seventy thousand dollars now i know this was the 80s but you now want to be a single dad to four children instead of two. And we've all seen the parent trap, both of them. And we all know you split children. But no, you take all four just to get that piddly little money. And everyone who's raised kids know that's piddly money. That's not going to do anything for you. <laughs> yeah, indeed it is. So our ultimate verdict on the staircase is that he's probably not done it, but we don't know. And that you should definitely watch all 13 episodes before coming to any conclusions like I have. 
We will have a longer version of this episode, an unedited version with more anecdotes, more historical facts and more fun that we'll make available when we open subscriptions. You can follow us on Twitter at MyDialorama. And as promised, I'll put all the links for the various films and documentaries that we mention in the description below. As ever, comments and feedback welcome. And we'll try to have a jingle next time. Maybe Chris will come up with one. Oh, that's great. We like our labour cheap. <laughs> <laughs>